I'm not going to mix this up. I'm just going to put it down. Uh, Randy, when did you come on staff at Miller? Uh, nine the second time. Okay, so, oh, this is not, oh, guys, we're in trouble. It's okay, we got it. When Randy was, uh, was back at, at Miller, because he was there when my sister went to school, and they went on a music tour and stuff together, uh, and then he came back, and uh, I think, I was trying to do the math, I think all of your kids, no, three of your kids were born while I was a student there. And so to see the Redekop family kind of grow and then all of a sudden now see them in this context is, is pretty cool, pretty special. And, uh, and when Randy was, and Peyton were staying here, he was like, he was so apologetic, but he's like, can we come one more time? And I was like, of course you can come one more time. And he said, okay, but, but we want to do something to help. And, uh, and so he offered to do worship and, and Jordan and, and Jason have been away and uh, Shayla and I have been fighting this head cold thing and, and to get a week off of not singing for both of us. We were like, yes, sign us up. Please come. And uh, as long as we don't get booed next week, we'll be, uh, we'll be okay. So thanks for coming, guys. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 5, and we're going to get there in just, uh, just a moment. But before we get there, I just have uh, a pretty serious thing that I want to share uh, with you. And this is just uh, to ask for your prayer. Um, we have friends that are from just kind of by the Steinbach area that we met while we were serving in Winnipeg, but we have a unique connection. Uh, they're serving as missionaries in Cape Town, South Africa. And, and for those of you who don't know, our son is from South Africa. And so we kind of got uh, developed a pretty good relationship with them and have been following their journey um, Mike is the dad's name. He's just a couple years older than me. And then Mary Ev uh, is his wife's name. And we just found out last week he was diagnosed with an extremely aggressive form of cancer and has been given three weeks to live probably. Uh, and so they have two young kids at home um, and, you know, they're halfway across the world and, and due to his health complications, they're not able to fly home uh, any longer. And so there's just a lot of stuff going on there. And so we would just ask that you would pray for Mike and Mary Ev uh, and their family. Um, they are in, in, in true missionary fashion. They're using this just as profoundly as anything else for the glory of God. Uh, and Mike's turned into, not that he wasn't, but he's turned into a little evangelist in the hospital. Uh, and, and he wrote just yesterday morning, he said after his daily quota, visitors had, had come in and prayed with him and shared with him and, and then had left. I guess one of the nurses came in and said, well, Mike, I, I guess you're all alone now. And he smiled real big and he said, nope, I'm not alone. And then he shared the gospel with this nurse. And, and what an opportunity and, and to hear them, um, to hear them sharing what's going on. Uh, it, it just, you know, life is such a fragile thing. And we just don't think about that until all of a sudden someone we know, someone we love, someone we care about is going through something like this. Um, so let's pray not only uh, for, for Mike and Mary Ev, but there are plenty of others in our own congregation here, uh, in our own communities that are struggling with all kinds of unique health challenges, with uncertainties. Uh, and some of those things maybe is public knowledge and, and some of it maybe isn't yet. But just remember that you have brothers and sisters here that that need our prayer. And so I just want to pray real quick as we start this morning uh, for those who are in need of a touch from the Lord, and then we'll look at Matthew 5. So God, as we begin this next part of our service this morning, 
We just want to lift up all of those to you this morning who are struggling with health. God, when we are healthy, it can be so easy to forget just how fast that can be taken from us. And so, God, I want to pray for each one of these people who are struggling, that have been given a diagnosis or uncertainty, or their world has been rocked with, with news of cancer, or illness, or disease. God, you know each one of them intimately, and you love them. And so first and foremost, we pray that they would know you in the midst of this, that if they're not a believer, that somehow you would use this crisis to bring them into faith with you. God, for those that already do trust in you, we thank you for the assurance of salvation. But we also pray for comfort, for support, for love, and for care. That each of us would reach out to those who are hurting and that we would show them that we love them. But God, even more importantly, would you wrap your arms around them and show them how much you love them right now. So God, we leave these things in your hands knowing that you have purpose and plans and, and we don't understand them all the time. But God, we want to trust you with that. We thank you for all that you're doing. Amen. <clears throat> if, you've, uh, if you're visiting this morning or if you haven't been with us for a couple of weeks here, we started a new series through the Sermon on the Mount, which is this just three little chapters uh, in Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and Matthew has recorded this for us as kind of the longest um, section of Jesus' teaching. And, uh, and so I just want to recap just a little bit because it's going to point to where we're going this morning. Uh, and then you're also going to see, and this is kind of a happy accident, is you're also going to see as we read our text this morning that that passage in 1 John mirrors so perfectly with it. And, and God's word has a way uh, of doing that. So as we started through the book of, or sorry, through the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, we looked at these things that we called the Beatitudes. And the point of it is basically this, is as we follow Jesus, as we choose to put Christ as the center, as the most important thing in our life, over time, these characteristics will become part of our lives, and these are the type of people that we will become. And the reminder for us is that you aren't called to live for you, but you're called to live for Christ. And as you live for Christ, You'll join or you'll, you'll invite others into that journey through how you live. Because when you go through things like crisis and hurt and pain and uncertainty, they'll watch your life and they'll go, why are you responding the way that you're responding? And we can say it's because of the Holy Spirit that is at work within me. That doesn't mean that we don't experience the hardships and the confusion, but it means that we know where to place our trust and our hope. And then last week we looked at Verses 13 to 20, and two kind of distinct things. Uh, one of them is being salt and light to the earth. And I qu quoted Craig Blomberg, though I called him Bloomberg because I wrote it down in my notes incorrectly. So just to clarify that, Craig Blomberg, he says it this way. He says, Christians are meant to permeate the world as agents of redemption. It's a beautiful statement. That's what you are called to do is wherever that is, whether that's at work or that's at home with your family, with your extended family, whatever that means is that you display Christ's glory as salt and light to the world. And so they see your, as it says there, as you see, as the world sees your deeds, they would glorify your father who is in heaven. So in other words, your life is meant to literally be evangelism, not just in the way that you speak, but in the way that you act, in the way that you interact with others. 
And then we looked at verses 17 to 20, and we spent a lot of time there. And the reason for that is because I think this is, is vital for us to understand all of Scripture. Is sometimes people kind of pit the Old Testament against the New Testament as if there were two different gods, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. And over the coming weeks here, we're going to show how not only is that incorrect, but that leads to some very dangerous potential of our doctrine and our beliefs and our understanding of who God is, what, what scripture ha- has to say in my life, and, and whether it has authority on it or not. And so Jesus says it didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so this morning and next week, we're going to look at six, so three this morning and three next week, uh, examples that Jesus gives as where he's saying, look, I didn't come to change the law. The problem is that you didn't interpret and understand the law in all of its essence and all of its beauty and all of its glory and all of it was pointing to God. And so we looked at a a verse that Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 last time that says uh, that all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is useful for correcting and for teaching and for training. Uh, so, So the point is that when Paul's writing that. He's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. So even though the the New Covenant is in place, Paul's looking back and he's saying all of the Old Testament has validity today. And we should understand that. We should study it. We should learn it. But I didn't give you verse 17. And so I'm going to put that on the screen. Well, I'm not going to. Uh, Someone is going to put that on the screen for us. And verse 17, it's the why Paul says this, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So that literally means, Paul's saying the Old Testament, all of its, it's long, but in all of the details of it is meant to equip you and to train you in righteousness so that not only are you equipped, but so that you're equipped for every good work. And so as I finished studying through this section, I didn't have time to say this last time, but here's how theologian Craig Keener summed up this section. This is a wonderful, wonderful sentence. He says this, Jesus summons those who would be his followers to radical devotion and radical dependence on God. His followers must be meek, must not retaliate, must go beyond the letter, beyond the letter's law to its spirit. They must do what is right when only God is looking They must depend on God for their needs and pursue his interests rather than their own and must leave spiritual measurements of others' hearts to God. In short, true people of the kingdom live for God, not themselves. That's the point of where we're going to move in these next few weeks as we understand as Jesus interprets the law correctly for us and shows us the heart of it, the response from us should be this this is meant So that I understand that my life is not about me, but my life's about him. He's called me for purpose and meaning. And and we live in a time where this, a a time and a place, I should say, where this is really difficult because uh, entertainment is all around us. And it can become so easy for us to fixate on my desires, the things that I want, uh, even the things that I think sometimes are good. And I can forget that what God has for me might be different. What God has for me has far greater meaning and purpose. And so that's what we're going to look at here in these coming verses. So let's look at the first three examples of that. Again, these first few verses, if if you were paying attention to the kids' video there, you'll, uh, you'll see the correlation to this. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So these three examples are things that we're going to look at here. And I hope that we're going to do this uh, exhaustively enough that it gives you a real good understanding. So, Jesus, I think what's important to note here is Jesus is not correcting or changing the law. He quotes from the law, and sometimes he quotes from it longer sections. Sometimes he quotes a part of it and then adds what kind of Pharisees had added to that, and then he clarifies those things. But Jesus isn't correcting it. Uh, sorry, he is correcting our understanding of it. He's not changing the words in it. So think of it this way. Jesus says, okay, you've heard it said, right? You shall not murder. Okay, I'm going to hope here. You don't have to put your hand up because that would be awkward. But hopefully all of us can say, yep, we haven't murdered anybody. And so Jesus is kind of looking at them and going like, do you really think that's the intent of, of glorifying God is, is just don't kill someone? As long as you haven't done that, you're good. I'm going to give you a really silly example, but it's, it's a very practical one, I think, for most of us. How many of you remember, uh, whether as a kid or as a parent, going on a road trip with your family? How many of you had multiple siblings or as a parent had multiple children? The longer you're in a car with multiple children, what happens? Mayhem. That is correct. Right? There's some fighting. There's some arguing. There's some, well... Maybe not in today's world if you all just have your noise-canceling headphones on and your screen in front of you. But for those of us who are older than that, right, is like, oh, let's listen to this song. No, now everyone has to listen to it. Oh, now we're grumpy. And then we're yelling. So after a long time, let's say you're going to visit your grandparents who are 10 hours away. After eight hours, mom and dad are ready to just like lose it, right? And so they turn around and they say, stop touching your brother. And you put the little barrier in between, right? And just, just leave each other alone. Okay, anybody relate to this? No, just me? So, so this happens, and then it's, it's as if the way the Pharisees were understanding the law was your parents going, don't touch your brother. It's like you walking up to somebody, I'm going to pick on Jason, and going, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you, right? Any parents? No? That's never happened in your car? Okay, where it's like, I'm not touching you. I'm not doing anything, uh, right? You're obeying the letter of the law. You're, you're technically doing what mom and dad said not to do. 
But are you honoring your family? Are you honoring your sibling? No, all you care about is yourself at that point. And you're just trying to like, I'm bored and I'm just going to cause a ruckus. And I'm just going to fight. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He's like, he's like so you've heard it said, don't murder. Yeah, but you're missing the whole point of it. It's not about whether you actually go through with murder in, in the actual act. The point is, do you recognize that every person, every man and woman has been created in the image of God and that God loves them desperately? Do you realize that they have dignity and worth and value and no matter how hard they may be running away from God in that moment, God still wants them to turn and to come to him? Do we understand that the way in which we're to interact with our brothers and sisters, and I don't just mean that sibling-wise, but beyond that in our Christian family especially, is that we are to care for them, we are to nurture them, we are to help them, and we are to look at them and go, you are a child of God and you are loved. And now I am called to be part of that too. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's trying to get at. He's not changing the law. Leon Morris writes it this way. He says, Jesus is not replacing the law with his own commands, for in no case does he relax the provision of the law. Rather, he shows that rightly understood, the law has much, sorry, that the law goes much further than his hearers had reckoned. Right? You can technically do something right and still do all kinds of stuff wrong. Right? And maybe, maybe there are some very practical ways in our lives that we can think about this is, maybe I shouldn't go here, but I'm going to just for a second, maybe our taxes, right? Technically, I'm obeying what the government has asked me to do, but practically I'm not. Maybe at work, it's, well, technically I, I didn't say or do this kind of thing, but I am speaking gossip all around the office about my coworkers and trying to get them fired or whatever it might be. Jesus' point here is this understanding of murder, and, and the video showed us this beautifully in 1 John as well, is all about the value and the dignity that another person has. See, if I decide that I have more, value, more value or more dignity than another human being, what am I doing? I'm disrespecting God's creation. I'm belittling their value, and I'm saying somehow that I'm more important than someone else that God has created. I hope we would never say that in those words. I hope we understand that God loves every single person desperately, and that God wants to be in a relationship with them. And so Jesus says, it's not about the act, but do you have hatred towards someone in your heart? Then you're guilty. And that's a shocking statement. And he's going to say the same thing with adultery, um, something different with divorce that we'll clarify here. But he's trying to say your motivation behind what you think, that's what's important. Not simply whether you do an act or not. If you have so much hatred towards someone in your heart, but you're like, you know what, I, I just... I just I'm not around them. I just don't go to talk with them and I just leave them over there and I leave myself over here so we're good. Jesus is calling of you to repent. He's calling of you to deal with what's in your heart towards your brother or your sister. He's calling you to understand their value, their dignity, and he's calling you to understand that you are supposed to build that up within them. 
Now again, this is where push comes to shove, is that doesn't mean that we can't disagree with people. It doesn't mean that we can't categorically think that the way in which they're living is wrong or inconsistent with Scripture. We, we looked at the verse already in 2 Timothy. It's meant for correction. It's meant for rebuke. It's meant to reprove. But, but I don't bring the Scriptures to another person going, see how good I follow them? You should do like I do. We take the Scriptures to go, look how far we have yet to go, and we need to journey towards this together. We should become more like Christ. It's not about me going, well, I follow this good, so now I expect everyone else to follow it good. It's here's who God is. Here's what he's called of us. Here's how he wants us to live. And so in our world, especially where truth has become this very relative thing and our identity is placed in very small and and specific areas of life, we bring a far more robust understanding of here's what life is and here's who Christ is. And here's what he's called us to do and here's the type of people he's called us to be. And if we follow what Scripture teaches us, we're going to respect and love and care for others. But we're also going to stand up for what's true and what's right. And I think in our culture, that's the biggest challenge, is how do you love somebody and yet disagree with them? Especially in a culture when we say things like, if you disagree with me, you hate me. Or if you don't condone my lifestyle, then you condemn my lifestyle. Scripture teaches us something different. We quoted, or this was said at the, at the video at the end of last Sunday, but this is from Matthew 22, and you can flip there if you'd like, uh, or you can just look at it on the screen here. It's Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Uh, some Pharisees come to Jesus, and, and they ask the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if we love God first, and if we understand who God is based in Scripture, then the call on that is now we will love others. We will love them enough to correct them when they're wrong, but we'll love them enough to do that with grace with an understanding that I don't have it all together either and that I need other people to come alongside me and help me in the areas where I don't see my own sin. We all have these kind of blind spots in our life. And so when we love God, the natural byproduct of that is we will love others. And so if you say, man, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand the people that I work with, then I'd ask you maybe to consider what Jesus is saying here. Is do we actually love Jesus or do we just think we do? That doesn't mean it'll come easy, but that does mean when we have anger or malice in our hearts that we recognize it, we repent of it, and, and as we're going to see in a few verses here, that we actually then go and deal with that with people. And that can be the hard part. So the implication here in, in verse 23, so... If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave it. Leave it there and go be reconciled first and then come back. Now again, Jesus isn't uh, abolishing the law in any sense. In fact, he's being very consistent. 1 Samuel 15.22 says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 
is right from the beginning of Scripture, and we see this over and over as God is saying, what I'm after is your heart and your motives, not, not just actions that, that you do in technicality. And so don't, and again, we don't have the sacrificial system. We're going to explain that in just a few moments. But in this case, is, is we're not going to the altar to offer something and then realize something, but rather think of it in our context, is if you're walking out to go to church one morning, is what Jesus is calling is, is, is don't sit there and sing all the songs and, and, and amen along to the sermon and, and yet have hatred and anger towards people in your heart because you're going to miss the whole point of what the scripture says. You're going to miss the whole point of what worship is. Rather, if you have things in your heart that need to be dealt with, when you wake up in the morning, deal with those things. And he gives an example of actually going out and dealing with that that reconciliation with a brother. If you know someone that you have wronged or that's wronged you and there's something there is make a phone call. Go out for coffee with, confess what your part of that is and ask forgiveness of that and, and maybe they'll reciprocate and maybe they won't. Maybe that relationship will be restored, maybe it won't. But have we done what we are called to do? Leon Morris again says, it's important that the worshiper gets his priorities right and the first thing is to be effective reconciliation. How can we be in broken relationships with each other and claim to be in a right and healthy relationship with God? That's the point. Now, again, this sounds terribly scary because it's like we know that we have issues in our life. We know we have sin. We know we have broken relationships. And so do we do this every day? The answer is yes. That's what it means to follow Jesus is when when the Holy Spirit convicts you of something and shows you there's an area in your life that needs to change or there's a relationship that needs to be restored is we're being called to go and to deal with it. Not to ignore it and say, well, I'll, I'll deal with that another time. It means life is messy. It means life is difficult. And it means that more often than not, we probably don't get to do all the things that we want to do. Rather, we have to deal with the things that God wants us to do. Not because... He's sitting there going, your, your things are unimportant, but because he's saying, the things that I have for you, they will actually give you purpose and meaning. And they'll give you joy. And they'll give you contentment. The things of the world won't. If you're a Christian, the way in which we live should be radically different than just simply reading some laws and going, technically I obey that, but it's about our heart going to Christ and saying, God, what do you have that I need to learn? What things are in my heart that need to change? All right, let's look at the next one here. It says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. So now, on Thursday of this last week, and I got the opportunity to go and, and do a marriage um, down at Emerald Lake, and it was, it was wonderful. But as I was preparing for that and preparing for this, I was just overwhelmed by the reality of this idea of vows, the vows that we say to one another when we're at that moment of marriage. As we promise things, we say things, and, and maybe, you, maybe you said something like, till death do us part. Well, our culture is, is not really a till death do us part. It's kind of more like a, when you start to annoy me, I'm gone. That's kind of the way we look at relationships in our culture. So when Jesus is talking about 
this idea of don't commit adultery. Again, he's not being like, okay, so, so you made a vow to your, to your spouse to be faithful to them. So as long as you haven't slept with somebody else, you're good. You can flirt with anybody you want. Like, is that what he's saying? Like, clearly not, right? He's saying, if even in your heart you have lustful intent, if you see something and you say, man, I want that and it is not yours and you have not entered a covenant of marriage with that, he's saying, that's adultery. And, and the people of God in the Old Testament, as they're going through the wilderness, as they're tr- making their way to the promised land, is they're accused of this over and over and over again. Is that they're not actually choosing to partner with God. They say they are, but then they partner with all these other gods, with all these other tribes, with all these other people groups. And God says, you know, even when you think of it, Moses is getting the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai, and what are the people down below doing? Anybody remember? They're creating a God that they can worship and thank them for taking them out of the land of Egypt. Now, granted, Moses has been up on the mountain for a few days, more than a few. He's been up there for a while. But they had just been rescued out of slavery miraculously walked through the Red Sea, and now they go, you know what? While we're making this covenant promise, God, you have said, will you, God has asked, will you follow us? Or will you follow me in all these things? And they say, we will. And then they go and commit adultery, and they worship another God. The point is not, you know, thinking about your marriage going, technically I haven't cheated on my spouse. The point is, where do your affections lie? Do you seek what's the best for your spouse? Do you want to honor and cherish them and lift them up? Do you want them to grow in their relationship with Christ? And are you constantly trying to show them that they're valued? I think every one of us who's in a marriage has said we probably haven't done a very good job of that always. There are moments where we probably do. But there are moments where we go through heartache and pain or where we think they've wronged me and so now I'm going to wrong them somehow like thinking that will even the scales. What Jesus showed us is that he went to the cross and went, I'm going to sacrifice my life for you though you don't deserve it. I say this all the time about marriage, but marriage is meant to represent Christ's covenant relationship with the church. So that literally means your marriage is meant to represent evangelism to the world. It's not about you and your spouse, it's about God and you and your spouse. And as you live and show people what that means, that means when your spouse wrongs you, that you show them mercy and kindness and grace because God has done that to us. And then he speaks in some very hyperbolic language. And I want to be clear on this because if we just say we're going to take everything as literal face value, we get real, well, nobody follows this. We'll just say it that way. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? He's not being literal. He's trying to get the Pharisees specifically, I shouldn't even say that, all of his disciples, he's trying to clarify, you've heard the Pharisees say, don't commit adultery, you can do all this other stuff. He's saying, no, this is about your heart. This is about where your affections lie. And so if you're struggling with sin, then you got to deal with that sin. That's, that's what he's saying. And so if you have an issue with, you got wandering eyes, and you're constantly looking at other people rather than spouse with affection, God's telling you, you got to deal with that. You need help with that. 
And we all probably have been guilty of that at some point in our life. And we probably need other men and women to come alongside us and help us with that where we can say, I want to commit to lifting up and exalting my spouse and showing them how much they're loved. And and that only happens when we invite other people in to help us on that journey because the world is constantly competing for your affections. Especially when you're standing in line at the grocery store and all the magazines are just sitting right there for you to look at. Are we going to commit, not to just simply not committing the act of adultery, but are we going to commit to honoring our spouse, honoring our relationships and showing people, man, I love my wife more than I love anybody else. I think that's probably all our goal, isn't it? That at the end of our life, that when somebody looks at us and they go, man, that person loved their family fiercely. That'd be a wonderful thing to be told. Now, just for the last few moments here, he gets into this idea of divorce. And, and I want to clarify this because this is, this is hot-button stuff in, in our culture right now. What I don't think these two verses are trying to do is trying to tell us uh, when it's permissible and when it's not permissible for a Christian to get divorced. I don't, and again, based on the context of what's going on here, I think we're dealing with our hearts. So I'll clarify that in a moment. But if you want to look further to this, and there's, there's lots of texts that, that talk about this. Jesus in Matthew 19 expands on this greatly. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this. So, and I think another sermon for another time is I think there are legitimate reasons for divorce that happen, but that, that that's never God's intent. And so if we want to look at this and we want to go, okay, when is it permissible and when it's not? That's a different conversation than what Jesus is saying here. And I'd love to have that conversation with you if you'd like at another time. But here, in the context of this, Jesus is dealing with your heart. And he's dealing with a specific issue that existed back in, in Deuteronomy 24 when the people kind of were coming to Moses and, and they were just divorcing their wives left, right, and center. And, and in that time, what that did is if they just... They were bored with their wife, and so they just went, man, we're just going to divorce them. They lost their security, and they lost their safety. It's a very different culture and a very different time than now. And so God permitted Moses to give a certificate of divorce, but that certificate essentially made her free to, uh, to be cared for by another, to be brought into a relationship again, so that she had safety and security and, and in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about it in a far deeper context. But his point is this is, it, it, this is not so that you can go and get divorced because your wife has bored you or your spouse, doesn't matter which side. He says it very simply, right? I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's, he's trying to deal with that mindset of going, this is not the way that God has intended it to be. God has intended that when we join our lives together, that we run after Christ together. And so your spouse is going to hurt you. That's just reality because we're selfish people inside. We're going to make mistakes and we're going to say things we regret. But are we then going to go and seek mercy and reconciliation, forgiveness from Christ? And are we going to offer that forgiveness to our spouse? Now, again, I'm not trying to say some kind of blanket statement that never should anyone get divorced. That's not the point. That's not what Jesus is trying to say here. He's trying to correct a misunderstanding of them saying, 
originally God intended that man and woman would join together and that their marriage would be evangelism to the world. That's what it's meant to be. Now, we live in a broken world. We live in a world where maybe we married someone who said they loved Jesus and then chose to run away from Jesus. What do we do then? And and Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7. And I think there's lots of wisdom that we can figure out how should we respond to a a broken relationship or how should we respond to abuse. All those kinds of things, they're all over Scripture. And we can have those conversations. But in these verses, that's not what it's saying. Jesus is trying to get to the heart of it going, if you're going, man, I'm bored with my spouse. I just want to divorce them. He said, "There's there's no legal paperwork that can somehow make that okay in the eyes of the Lord. It's not about your life. It's about your life with Christ. It's about honoring him with our decisions and what we do. And that means life will be messy. But I think you probably all know this at some point, is all of our relationships are messy, aren't they? Some are really good and really healthy. But if you have an extended family, you probably know that life is messy. How are we called to declare Christ to them? How are we to show them Christ's mercy and grace? And so in these three specific examples, and we'll look at three more uh, next week, but in these examples, the point is this. It's not about technically what you do. It's about what happens within your heart. That's not an excuse to say, man, I really don't like this person, and so I'm just going to admit that and tell them I don't like them, and now I feel better about myself because I just was consistent. Like, that's not what it's saying. It's saying if you have hatred towards someone, then recognize that you're already guilty of breaking the law because the law is meant to show us that God wants us to be in relationship together. So again, here's the good news. Because if you read these three and the next three we'll read next time, you can basically come to this conclusion. Is who then then can, can obey the law? What's the answer? There was only one who did. His name was Jesus. And because he came and he obeyed the law completely and then offered himself as a sacrifice for us, because of that, we can enter into eternity with God. We can enter into heaven. We can be with him for eternity. Because he has done what we could not. And I said this last week, but it needs to be said over and over as we move forward, is if you're a Christian, if you've confessed Christ as your Savior, that means he's given you the Holy Spirit so that he will equip you to actually do what he's calling us to do here. The question is simply this. And I think this is a prayer that I pray every single morning. And this is a prayer that sometimes I do and that sometimes I regret that I did very poorly. But every morning I pray, God, would you give me the strength to live by the power of your spirit, not my own? Would I see people through your eyes and not mine? Would I show mercy to those that I don't think deserve mercy? In other words, would you help me not be selfish, but would you help me see them the way that you see them? That's very difficult. But the good news is that we've been given the Spirit so that we don't have to do what we think we want. But we can give up of that. We can give that up and we can say, God, I want to follow after you. So would you give me supernatural grace and mercy for this person at work who constantly is belittling me? 
for this person who's tearing me down, for this person that is hurtful in how they speak, would you give me the strength to love and to show them grace and mercy? Because in that, that's when they're going to look at us and go, why are you so kind? And then we get to tell them about Jesus. That's kind of the whole point of having the Holy Spirit is that people look at us and they go, you shouldn't be responding that way. And you go, you're right. And I'm not doing my own strength. I'm responding the way that God wants me to respond. That's the heart of what's happening here. That's what we're going to look at in the next week as well with three other kind of things. But I don't want us to read these verses and somehow get this sense of like, man, I really have to obey these things so that I can go to heaven. That's a misunderstanding, and that's what the Pharisees were guilty of. I can't do this perfectly, but there was one who did, and his name was Jesus. And he's offered himself a substitute for me, and he's given me the Holy Spirit so that I can follow after him. But praise the Lord that when I choose my own way and when I give in to sin, that he offers grace and mercy. But now it's up to me, just like in this example of going to court or or as your accusers passing judgment on you, is go and be reconciled to your brothers and your sisters. Take the initiative to go out and work on your relationships because that's what honors Christ. Because in doing that, you love others and you're loving God. So let's be marked as people who want to do these things, not with this view that somehow my, my deeds will get me to heaven, because that's not true but rather that my deeds, my good deeds will point others to the grace and the mercy of Jesus so that they can know who he is. God, thank you for these texts and, and they're very direct. They're very clear. And frankly, they're impossible for us to follow on our own. And would you help us to see the point in that? That we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that as we learn how to interact with people in all the varying relationships that you give us, that you have equipped us with the Holy Spirit so that we can be salt and light to them. That we can show them mercy and grace and forgiveness. God, we want to be people that declare Jesus to the world. And so every day would we pray that we would follow the strength of the Holy Spirit, that we would not give in to our own desires, but that we would follow and run after you. Because in that we'll find meaning and purpose and value and identity. God, be with us in these moments. As we close now uh, with a song, we want to sing praise to you. And so as we've already read here, if we know that there's broken relationships in our lives, God, when we leave this place, would we go and seek reconciliation? Would we confess the things that need to be confessed? Would we apologize for the things that we have done wrong? would we understand just how important it is that we live in peace together? God, we want you to receive glory and honor, not just from our words, but from our actions and our motivations in our hearts. So be with us now. 
Amen.